1: This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. On the show today is Matt Fiedler, co-founder and former CEO of the Record of the Month Club, Vinyl Me Please. Since launching VMP in 2013, Matt successfully took the business from a passion project to a globally recognized brand with more than 30,000 active subscribers in more than 40 countries around the world. During his tenure as CEO, VMP was named to Fast Company's most innovative companies list in the music category and was twice listed to the Inc. 5000, while he remains chairman of VMP, Matt also serves as an advisor to several early stage companies in addition to his new venture, Unbreakable. In this episode, we talk about the early days of VMP, of course, the company's inflection points and its impressive growth trajectory as a niche brand, leadership lessons learned throughout COVID and beyond, the process of letting go as CEO of a business that has meant so much, Matt's favorite records he can't live without, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here's VMP's Matt Fiedler. You know, I'm super excited to do this as a music fan. I'll probably go in a bunch of different directions. But obviously, you know, folks that are listening are going to want to know about your story relative to the growth of Vinyl Me Please, which is an incredible story, which started way back in 2013 as a passion project. And of course, has evolved into a lot more. So, what was going on circa 2012 into 2013?
0: Yeah. Well, so I had studied music business and entrepreneurship in college, which is weirdly relevant to what I ended up doing. Did not have the idea for VMP in college and had no sense as to what I would actually do with those degrees. I just knew that A, I loved music and B, I eventually wanted to work for myself And so when I graduated, I had this thought. I was like, I I wanna work with music, but I don't necessarily wanna work in the music industry. The music industry is it's its own thing, right? And so when I graduated college, I I tried to find jobs like in music and advertising or some sort of blend where I could use music, but it wasn't like I wasn't necessarily in the music industry, so to speak. And I ended up taking a job at a company that had nothing to do with music, but it was very entrepreneurial. And I was the first employee there, had to write the business plan, had to build the product, had to do all the things basically to figure it out. And at the same time, you know, this was right around when Spotify had entered the US and the whole model from a consumer's perspective was changing from paying for ownership to paying for access. And streaming, of course, is totally disrupted the way that we listen to music share discover whatever and at the same time you know I love that I totally appreciated that experience and you know eventually we hired somebody at the company that I was working with that was also a huge fan of music and so he and I I mean we were on Spotify we listened we talked more about music than we did working quite frankly and we were just sharing things back and forth and we had eventually decided to like move into the city of Chicago together and get our own apartment and all that and I'd got my dad's old turntable for Christmas the year before and for us like we just had this dumb thought. It was like, well, let's get a bunch of records that we love and let's, we can't really afford furniture, but maybe we can afford some records. And That's how we'll kind of like curate our space and that's kind of the identity that we'll put into it. But going into a record store was like insanely overwhelming. There's a bazillion things on the shelf. We were making hardly any money. So, the thought of spending 20 or 30 bucks on a record was actually quite significant. And then two is like there's a million records that we wanted to buy. How are we supposed to choose just one of them? And so, it was like all these things were happening, right? Like Spotify, streaming, vinyl kind of coming back and there being some intrigue around it. Uh, For us, it was really around like just wanting to sort of have a trophy piece or a trophy room of the albums that had defined us and I think we just sort of naively assumed that there were more people like us and so, we just, it was a series of what if questions. I was like, well, what if there are more people like us? What if there are people that want this like tangible experience with music, want this sort of like connection, this deepened relationship with it, want to discover new music but don't necessarily want to have to like keep up so to speak, and also want to build relationship with other people that are similar and like-minded in that regard. We launched, I think it was January 1st of 2013. And we really had no idea what it was going to become. I mean, I remember, well, one, when we were filling out like our incorporation docs, we used LegalZoom and we did a rock, paper, scissors for who was CEO. And it ended up being me. So, there's a 50-50 chance of like, something being different there from the get-go. And then also remember early on, we were like, what if this was a full-time job someday? Wouldn't that be freaking cool? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Can you imagine?
1: For those that don't understand what the early iteration of this thing was, like what was the value proposition to a consumer?
0: Um, I think we were charging like $27 a month. For a record that you could get at the record store for 20 bucks, Granted, you know, we included shipping and all that stuff in it. So, there was some value add. But the thing that we used, really tried to differentiate ourselves through and kind of create value from was this idea of like personal music curation. So, it was kind of blending the digital and the analog. And so, saying, you know, if you're a subscriber, you get one record a month, but you then also get connected to sort of a personal music curator that will build you like a playlist of new stuff. And that will be a relationship that you can develop over time and you can continue to, you know, talk about what you like and what you don't like. Their job is to open you up to things that you you haven't heard before and to really kind of, in another way than just the record, kind of bring you on a journey through music. And so, that was where we kind of, you know, made the difference in terms of the the dollar value. Um, But then as we grew, it's like a year and a half in, we were able to start doing Exclusive pressings and custom releases that weren't available elsewhere, and that's where their value propositions really got solidified. And then, you know, some of the other things that we were doing around like personal music curation and whatever we stopped doing because it wasn't it wasn't as scalable.
1: You take this from obviously zero to north of thirty thousand active subscribers across more than forty countries, and. When you think about the factors that really contributed to that hockey stick growth, um, I'm putting hockey stick in quotes as a Canadian, you mentioned exclusive pressings. What are some of the other big variables here?
0: Pretty early on, the way that... Because the Record of the Month Club had been tried and failed so many different times before. And I think looking back where we had been able to be successful where others weren't is we really were pursuing it with a genuine desire to share great music with great people. And it was sort of a for us, by us type mentality. Like we were consumers, we were getting high on our own supply, so to speak. And that authenticity, I think, one, what it did starting the very first month, we worked with Langhorn Slim and The Law and put out his his album, The Way We Move, is we really explained to him why we were doing what we were doing. And they thought that was rad. They thought it was it was like unheard of. And so we were able to leverage just by imbuing our values onto him and our authentic desire to do what we were going to do onto him we then had access to his audience, right? So, he tweeted about us, he emailed about us, he did all these things for free. And all of a sudden, there was tens of thousands of people that knew about Final Me Please that wouldn't have otherwise known about it. And the other side, from a consumer standpoint, people saw that authenticity through the time and the attention to detail that we put into our packaging. Early on, we were like hand wrapping every single record. We were writing handwritten thank you notes, all that type of stuff. And then again, that created a different set of groundswell where people that were subscribers would tell their friends and then those friends would tell their friends and so on and so forth and it just became this network effect where we went from zero to I think by the end of the first year we had like 500 subscribers which is not huge but by the end of the second year we had 5,500 if I'm not mistaken I wouldn't say they're overnight right like they don't just all happen at once it was it happens very slowly and then kind of all at once you know what I mean But those were some of the key elements that I think created the opportunity for success in the early years. You know, for
1: years, and and I'm dating myself here, but for years, you know, CDs were the ultimate showcase of musical taste and appreciation of high fidelity. CDs obviously have not made the same kind of comeback that vinyl has. So why do you think that is? Like, what is it about vinyl that
0: makes it so attractive? If you draw it all the way back and you sort of look at the evolution of format in music, really, it's all driven by convenience and sort of increasing consumption consumption. And it's really been a commoditization of things over time. So, the CD was basically, it was marketed as a smaller record at that point. It was more portable. It was something you could put in your car. It was something that you could buy way more of and wouldn't take up as much space in your home, all that type of stuff. And then the MP3 was sort of a digital version of that and then streaming and you know so on and so forth. So, I think when you look at other formats of music, like they're all derivations of one another, right? And they're all sort of designed to create music in such a way that's more consumable and also easier to distribute. And I think part of the lure for vinyl coming back is just the fact that it's, I don't know what it is about it. I think it being different from CDs, it's like, it's obviously a larger format, right? So, you can take in a lot more of it. It's visually striking. So, it's something that I think doubles as an art piece. You can like, you know, I've got it in my background here, says something about me just being on a call with me. I've got it in my living room. I will invite people over and say, bring some records and let's, you know, have a dinner party or let's make some cocktails or what have you. So those are just not things that I think were designed into the CD experience. I mean, they were to a degree, but it became so much more about like consumption and just the quantity, right? Whereas I think the record has always been sort of a, it's, a bit inconvenient, right? And that makes it a little bit more human at the end of the day as well. And I think too, when you look at, you know, the the younger generations coming up today, people who grew up where it's always been digital, it's always been streaming or whatever, they look at a record and they're like, holy shit, like that's, how does that happen? It's sound that is a physical thing like that just, there's not many representations where you're able to sort of like transcend your senses in that type of way. And so, people, I think, look at records as like real innovation now, which I don't know if they know or not that it's been around for... 100 years or something like that. So, I I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. I don't know that it's totally logical. And it's a lot like NFTs or crypto, where you can't really make a logical argument there. It's more, you know, the beauty is in the eye of the boulder, so to speak.
1: Yeah. And I'm thinking about sort of the factors that make up the value proposition of a streaming service or access to music via streaming. So, One, you know, convenience, two being speed or responsiveness, and three being this sort of like idea of sampling and discovery. And in a way, vinyl sort of runs completely in the opposite direction. As younger consumers, as, you know, consumers who are listening to music become younger, do you think that this kind of format is still one that people appreciate going forward?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at vinyl just sort of on its own, maybe it's hard to really understand, but there's analogies, industries related and unrelated, like books, physical and digital books. When the Kindle came out, everybody was convinced that the paperback book was dead in the water. But yet, I think physical book sales are stronger than they've ever been or as strong as they've ever been you know, now that the Kindle's been sort of in existence for 15, 20 years or whatever it is. So, I think there's there's evidence there. I think a similar but unrelated thing is like in slow food, right? Like people will pay a premium to go and sit down at a nice restaurant. They appreciate the ambiance. They appreciate the service. They appreciate the ability to have an elongated conversation with their friends or their community or whatever it might be. And like the fact that they can spend two or three hours at dinner With a group of people is actually really exciting for them. But the value prop is not necessarily like, cool, you're going to go pay more. You're going to spend a lot more time and like, we're going to make up for it because we're going to have cool lighting and some sweet music. You know, like that doesn't make sense, but yet here we are. I definitely think that it's a format that's going to stick for sure. I mean, people have been saying it's a fad for 10 years now, more than I don't think it's a fad. It's continuing to grow. And I think. What's really interesting is it's also continuing to grow by way of these younger consumers and the people that are in college or, you know, in their mid-teens that are like, oh, this is, wait a second, this is totally different. Like, I actually appreciate so much of my world, so much of my life, so much of my relationships are in the digital context and they're very intangible. And there's like that natural human desire for something that is tangible, both physically, but then also like your mind can just better understand it, right? So, I would never just say that like vinyl is going to be bigger than streaming or whatever, but I I definitely think that there's balance between sort of the digital revolution and just humanity, right? And these human experiences are always going to be things that people are going to be looking for. And I don't think they're ever going to go away in any context. And I think music in particular, because it is such a human, unique art form, and it's such a unique way of sort of Expressing humanity and creating connection and telling stories and espousing emotion and, and so on and so forth. Rewinding back to the early days, you flip a coin, you become
1: CEO, this thing starts to grow. Talk to me about the logistics
0: of all of this. Like, where are you sourcing the records? Are you holding inventory at all? And I think anybody who has a business that deals with physical inventory, much less physical inventory with a a complicated manufacturing process and a long supply chain understands the challenges of what it takes to scale that type of business. Early on, before we were doing the exclusive pressings, I think what was kind of nice but also challenging about the business is we had to buy what was already available, right? So, we could only curate based on what was sort of already being manufactured and in stock. And that became challenging as we had, you know, three or 400 members where it was, there's not many records that they're, they have an excess of three or 400 records, you know, just laying around. So that definitely affected the way that we were able to source and select music. And then obviously the pricing is, you don't really have an opportunity to command a price or really have control in the quality or anything like that. When we started to get, 500 is about the minimum quantity where it makes sense economically to like actually do your impress on something. So, that's about when we started to, you know, commission our impresses. And that's again where the value proposition became very strong, but that's also where the learning curve for us like became this like pretty steep inflection point where there was so much that we didn't know going into it. We didn't know anything about, you know, how it worked or what the process was. We didn't know anything about who does what when and where and timelines and what needs to happen in order for things to show up on time and and all that stuff. And I think we have a lot of members that have been with us for you know, since the early days. And they remember the times where we didn't have records in a month because something in the supply chain broke or there was a delay or there was something that went wrong or, or what have you. And we had to tell thousands of people like, hey, sorry, I know we're a record of the month Club, but we actually don't have a record for this month. And I think at the same time, we, like lev- we forced the industry to level up because it was a certain amount of acceptance as to like, eh, You know, the street date is this, but it's okay. We can have records in hand like six weeks later, people will buy it and we'll just ship it when they get it. Like it's no big deal. That didn't work for us. That wasn't something that we were willing to accept. And at the same time, like if there was a defect, they were kind of like, it's just an imperfect product. Like we're not going to fix it. And that also wasn't going to work for us. So, there were several times where we had to go back and be like, no, 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 like this is not okay, like you need to redo it. And again, that was awareness for us and and sort of an understanding as to like where are all the different pieces of the process and, and what do we need to do, where do we need to insert ourselves to be able to ensure that the quality that we're sending, the product that we're sending at the end of the day is the highest quality thing that, you know, somebody conceivably could get. And then we've also made tons of mistakes, I think at the same time where, you know, some of the solutions to those problems were more reactionary and they would say like okay well the way to solve the delay is to just order things much sooner much you know further ahead of time and in that scenario we're forecasting growth and we're assuming you know a certain set of things to be true and when those don't become true then you get yourself into hot water pretty quickly and I, there's many times where we ended up with thousands of records that we didn't need because we'd placed an order you know, seven or eight months ahead of time to mitigate not having records on time and so on and so forth. And then as we added more layers into the business, into the experience, like I really started to appreciate the art of demand planning and the people that could sit down and reasonably forecast, like how much do we need? And then also our supply chain team and being able to anticipate, you know, where things could go wrong and like build in the steps to the process to create checks and balance and to take ownership of certain things. And now we're at a point where like everything we sell, we manufacture. And we also know that how important that stuff is to our customers. Like I think one thing that we've seen is how directly NPS score will relate to churn and retention and how much NPS score is influenced by the quality of the record that they're getting. And so it makes sense for us to invest in those types of things. And it makes sense for us to take ownership where we need to because that has a direct correlation into the success or not of our business. So you're named to Fast Company's
1: most innovative companies. It's in the music category. You're twice listed to the Inc. 5000 list. It's super impressive. But as you guys build your team and you yourself... Take on the role as uh, of CEO. How do your roles change? And reflecting back on on your seven plus years, what do you think are your strengths?
0: You know, the mark of a good CEO, I think, is being able to understand those ebbs and flows in those different stages, but then also, like at the same time, get super comfortable with letting go. Like there were pieces of the business that I held very tightly for a very long time, and by the end of my tenure as CEO, I had. Built a team where I was able to distribute the majority of the responsibility to everybody else on my team. Like at one point, I had been doing everybody's job. I stepped out of the day to day about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago. And so I'm on the, I'm still on the board of directors and chairman of the board and everything. And that's another evolution of having to let go because now I've had to empower our management team to like run with the business and and to give them the opportunity to do things potentially differently than I would do that. And that's really hard. (laughs) You know, I think I heard a really interesting definition of trust, something to the effect of like trust is giving something that you care about to somebody else and hoping that they're going to take care of it in the same way that you will. And at the same time, knowing that they're probably going to do it differently and being okay with that. I think that's, that's really hard for a lot of people to grapple with.
1: You mentioned this idea of, of letting go and stepping aside into this role of chairman. And the way that you're sort of talking about trust in this context seems to be critically important. Like how was that for you, that transition out of the CEO role? And how did you know it was the right time?
0: It's It's incredibly difficult. And again... It's one of those things that objectively in the moment, it's really hard to see what the work is or what you need to do to be able to enable something like that. It's sort of the benefits that could come from something like that or the willingness to go and to empower others, um, but it's critically important. And for me in particular, I think stepping out of the day-to-day was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I guess the way that I kind of knew that it was the right time for me was, you know, it was uh, end of 2020s when I ended up stepping out. So prior to that was all COVID, lockdown, quarantine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just found myself hesitating like day in and day out and in some ways kind of paralyzed and not really being able to think clearly about what are we doing? What are we working for? What are we trying to create here? What's the vision for the company? How do I align the team in and around that? How do we weather some of the challenges that we're dealing with, and you know whatever context they might exist? And I was just so mired in the details and so afraid to like put myself out there and to have the vulnerability to say like, look, this is my vision. This is where we're going to go. And in part, I was afraid of people being like, I don't want that, and opting out (laughs) and leaving. And it scared the shit out of me. And I was fighting a war with both hands behind my back and my legs tied together and my eyes closed and my ears closed and my mouth closed. And you know, I was just gasping for air, basically. And it got to a point where it was not healthy for me. It was not good for the team. It was not good for the company. And it became pretty obvious that like, for myself and for the business and for the mission to be successful, I needed to do something different. So in some ways, the decision to move out of the day-to-day was like standing on the edge of a cliff. I can't see where the ground is. I know I need to jump and it's scaring the shit out of me. I don't even know if I have a parachute. I don't know what any of it looks like on the other side, right? And at the same time, still, I think, deciding to do it, which sounds a bit crazy, I guess, if I if you articulate it that way. But I have to say, it's I think it's been one of the most important things that I've done for myself. I think the company has really benefited from it. The team's really benefited from it. It's really given me the opportunity to just sort of reset and regain my own perspective on life and really answer my the questions of like, what do I want from life? And what am I here to do? What do I want to build and all that? And doing it separate from also having to say, well, what's true for this company?
1: Looking at the tenure that you've had as founder and CEO of this amazing brand, to hear you describe the way you were feeling at the edge of the cliff and having that level of insecurity as a CEO is quite remarkable to me. And... I'm wondering, just based on your own experience or what you've observed with with other founders who have had this kind of tenure, do you feel like other founders, when they do step aside, have a similar experience?
0: My experience is my own. So I don't know if I'm unique or not. I, I think I've learned... No matter how unique I think I am, I'm not usually like there's always somebody else, at least one other person. Right. And I think, you know, I think it's certainly easy for founders to get caught up in their own ego and to believe that they are their company and their company is them. And I think that that's a really dangerous place to be. In some ways, I would say I was never really comfortable in the CEO role, for better or for worse. And I think in a lot of ways that made me a great CEO, but it also really. Affected my ability to lead because it was a, I was missing a certain sense of confidence. I had a ton of humility and I was super humble, but I at the same time I had a hard time being like, "This is where we're going and this is what we're doing." Like, get on or get off, right? You know, there's people that exist on either end of the spectrum, right? And I'm probably on one end or closer to one end than I am more in the middle. But I think the best CEOs are ones that can kind of straddle that in between, where they have the humility, they have the humbleness, they understand that it's a journey. They they don't take sort of the ebbs and flows and the non personally and at the same time like they're able to paint a pretty clear vision and clear your pretty clear path and sort of be the steward and sort of walking with people on that journey. You know, that's something that I've really, in this time away, have really tried to find for myself is like, what's that thing that I have conviction for? Or what are the values that, you know, I care deeply about? And what are the beliefs that I can sort of rest on for myself that have nothing to do with whatever job or company or thing that I'm working on or building or whatever? And being able the ground, my sense of self in that, as opposed to attaching it to, you know, whatever might be happening in a business.
1: Do you feel like you understand the archetype of a leader better than you did when you were in the seat
0: as a CEO? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. For sure. And there's, um, you know, I think part of my my mentality is I'll replay a lot of things and I'll sort of wonder like, what if? And there's several different points in the VMP journey where I'm like, oh, man, what if I could show up like this or could have shown up like this instead of that, you know? Or, oh, when you see somebody speaking or you read something that's super inspiring or you listen to a podcast, you're like, ah, Damn it. Like, that's, it's not that I didn't have it. I just didn't, I couldn't lean into it or I, did, I chose not to lean into it. I chose to be afraid and to sort of walk away as opposed to just being honest. What I've started to realize is like the people that people admire are people that just, they just do things. They just show up and do it. Right. And they've got their own insecurities. They've got their own fears. They've got their own, you know, mental games that they have to play with themselves to be able to get there. But at the same time, they're just, they're still doing it. Right. Like, they're not letting that headwind deter them. You know, which I, I there's so many different points in the journey of VMP, which is almost ten years deep now, that we collectively, anybody that was a part of the team at, at one point or another, or myself individually, like we were able to do that. Right. And we were able to sort of suffer through those headwinds and suffer through those challenges and to to find the opportunity despite, you know, what was really hard and difficult. I still have to do that most every day. And part of the work is just deciding to show up the next day, you know, despite that. It's
1: hard to make two platinum albums.
0: My dad used to always say, this, like, an artist, their first album is always going to be great because they have their entire lifetime to make it. Their second album is going to suck because they have six months. <laughs> He's
1: not wrong. I mean, there's very few bands that can rinse and repeat one great album after another. Were there other leadership lessons that came out of that period during
0: COVID? I think one of the most important elements of COVID to sort of put a bow on it is it really exposed my insecurities and it really made it clear to me as to like the places that I still had yet to grow. And that's despite we were one of the companies that largely benefited from COVID, people being at home and having some disposable income. And there was definitely a desire for those human connections or sort of like tangible touch points in quarantine and whatnot. And so despite the business more or less being in a better position than it ever had been at that point. You know, there were still pieces of me that were really reckoning with my own self-doubt and my own insecurities that I think it really tested my leadership and it really showed me the places that I have yet to grow. And I think at the same time, like, what does it look like to be vulnerable and a leader at the same time? Those were all pieces. When I look back and I replay, I'm like, man, there was like five, six different opportunities from like, ah, shit, like here's a chance where I chose to back away and chose to let my insecurity kind of win versus, you know, just trying to find a way through and and trying to do the work on myself, put those things aside, walk with them or whatever I needed to do at the time, but still kind of show up in a way that, you know, could move the company forward. I think those were, I don't know, everybody had their own experience in COVID. That's what it was for me. I know you
1: serve as an advisor and mentor to other founders, to other early stage companies. What have you learned from these companies and or founders that you've worked with that has changed the way you operate either personally or professionally obviously they get a lot from you right that that's the obvious piece but what do you get from them
0: what i love about the companies that i work with and i i think mentors that i had or have along the way probably would say something similar about me but i just i just really appreciate the fact that they have a vision they have conviction about something and it's it's like no matter what i say like i'm not going to change their mind there's no way that I'm going to convince them that this is a bad idea. And in some ways, I I appreciate that. And I really respect that. Because I think that that's, that's kind of what it takes to be an entrepreneur is like you, you sort of have to have this hopeless optimism that it's all going to work out in some way or another. And it's not to say, you know, I think that at the same time, these people are very open to feedback and very open to, you know, what if or how do we or whatever. But at the same time, it's like they look at the challenges as things to overcome, not as like walls that are going to stop them. And I, I just really admire that. And I think, you know, I try to surround myself with those types of people because, again, it's super, like I said, part of the work that I've had to do for myself is just sort of wrestle with like my insecurities and at the same time, my desire to like do things right. And so it's easy for those two things to like be at odds with one another. And so just more examples of people being like, yeah, this is really hard. And also, I'm really scared and like, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? <laughs> like, it's just, it's so refreshing. I think it's it's so easy for a lot of people to look at companies or founders or people that have been quote unquote, Successful is like, oh, they just knew the answers from the get go. And who knows what happens with the companies that I'm advising, but it's clear that they don't know the answers and neither do I. Right. And so it's just, it's a really good reminder of like, this is a journey. There's many different ways through the challenges. And again, the work is to like show up and to continue to persevere despite, you know, whatever you might be dealing with.
1: What about some of these early core values or operational? frameworks, let's say, that you used at the beginning of your journey with VMP relative to what founders are building with early stage companies. So I've got a couple that I've just noted that I wanted to ask you about. So building something, this is for us by us kind of thing. We have this hypothesis that there's more people out there that are like us so let's just continue doing this thing versus let's say what VC backed companies might think about or how they might think about this question of, you know, how big is the market? Like, what is the TAM? We need to make sure we're building something that the market demands, not something that we want. Like, how do you square those two things? How would you advise an early founder in that regard?
0: The people that I advise, I think one of the things that they always hear me say is like, what's the narrative? Like, you got to put this into a bigger context. Like if it's a fundraise, like you can't just go to tell somebody that you're raising $10 million just because you want to raise $10 million. Like, what's the narrative? And then sometimes it's like, well, you know, the narrative is that this is a big industry and we've got a great product and look at all the money that we've generated on the customers that we really have. And I'm like, "No, no, no, that's not the narrative. The narrative is like, why are you here? What's the change that you're trying to create? What are you trying to affect? Like, how does that come to life? right? Because like, I think if you can tell that narrative and if you can lead with the mission in mind, it doesn't matter what you do. It creates a ton of flexibility for yourself as an entrepreneur with whatever stakeholders you might have. And it creates a ton of opportunity because you can pivot and you can adapt, you can evolve, you can like iterate as you need to. But the business or sort of the context of the business doesn't change or doesn't have to change, you know? So I'm always like, you know, what's the narrative here? Like, how are you going to tell this story to somebody? You know, like if it's a Game of Thrones book or Hunger Games or whatever, like what's the narrative? Who are the characters? And like, what's the arc? Right. And where are you at in this journey and bring people along? And I tell people like in your teams, like, You're going to get really sick of reminding people why you're here and why you're doing it. And you're going to have to come up with a thousand different ways to say the same exact thing, but that's your job. Like you have to do that. You have to, it's one of the most important things you can do. And, you know, I think people lose sense of that, right? Like that authenticity, that like desire, like it doesn't matter if you're B2B or B2C or whatever, like you had a reason to create something and it doesn't matter if there's only one person like you, like there's another person like you and you can bet that it's probably going to be more than one. And if you can create that connection, man, There's power there for sure. Saw it firsthand, right? And like, I would always say like, I have no business being the CEO of a 15 or $20 million company or, you know, the success that VMP has earned or whatever. It's like, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the fact that like people just really resonated with what we were saying in the story that we were telling.
1: Post-VMP, you are obviously on to to other stuff now. Unbreakable, let's spend a few minutes talking about Unbreakable, spelled U N B R K. BLE unbreakable. You're helping companies build longer and deeper consumer connections through membership, community, and subscriptions, all things you have deep experience in. What is Unbreakable all about?
0: It's a good question. It's a bit amorphous. I think you know our story is still kind of in development too. But at the end of the day, like my partner, Dave, he spent 15 years at Nike. He most recently, before leaving Nike, was an entrepreneur in residence and and had built a business called Nike Adventure Club, which was a subscription for kids' shoes. And similar to VMP, they had built way more than just a subscription. Their product transcended, you know, the nature of a recurring transaction and they built a community. They built relationships. They built, we would call unbreakable bonds with their customers. And that's exactly what VMP did, just in a much different context. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, too, what's interesting about Dave and I is his background comes from big corp, Nike, still innovation, still kind of having to figure it out and start it from the ground and build it up but with a lot more resources than what I had. Whereas I am more trial by fire, like having to figure it out because it's my credit card bill that I'm having to pay at the end of the day. And what we come together and the perspective and the experience and what we really try to offer our clients is like been there, done that experience before as it relates to innovation, as it relates to entrepreneurial endeavors, as it relates to getting something out and into the world and scaling it up over time and looking at the product and the experience as much more than you know, just a utility, right? Thinking about how do we create these connections? What are the motivations? What are the intrinsic values of the user's perspective or current or otherwise that we need to connect into? And how do we do that? How do we craft the experience to do that? How do we create the touch points that, you know, that bring those things to life? And so we found a really cool niche for ourselves where we work with a lot of different companies, all different sizes. But I think the ones that we have the most fun with are larger corporations that have a desire to innovate, that have a desire to do something different, maybe than what their core business is and have something that is like deeply connected into, you know, a certain space or a certain problem or a certain, you know, thing, right? And we'll take it, we'll incubate it. We'll do all the market validation that we need to do. We'll do all the kind of the MVP brand you know, value proposition definition, validate it through a series of tests. And over time, you know, our goal is to basically get it in the market, scale it, prove that it works or doesn't work, and then hand it back to the business or to hand it back to a team that can then take it and run it and operationalize it. What I love about it is it is starting over and over and over and over again, right? So it's the first six months of VMP, the first six months of Neki Adventure Club over and over and over and over and over again. And as a builder, I love that, right? It excites me so much.
1: In the last two minutes, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about five records you can't live without. So I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Try and come up with your top five.
0: (laughs) Oh man! All right. So Wilco is a forever. I've loved them. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was like the first album that I like truly, truly fell in love with. In part because it was so weird. I was like, "What the hell is happening here?" But it was so beautiful. Like there's so many layers to that album. So, it's hard not to put that on, but I've listened to it so many times that I think one of my favorite Wilco albums now is A Ghost Is Born. It's one of those things that you listen to and every time you're like, God damn, this is so good. (laughs) It's not like the thing that everybody's going after. And then Sky Blue Sky, I'd put it in that same category. Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City absolutely love. I love the fact that it's, you know, typically I hate rap albums that have like a skit, but I love that album because it is, you know, talking about stories. Like it is a story from start to finish. And I think it's brilliant. It's so good. Play that for my kids all the time, which is probably not recommended. (laughs) Of course, I play the explicit version because who likes the clean version of anything. So, that's another one. There's this record called Bastards of the Beat by a band called The Damwells, which is like, Sort of an average alternative rock band. I think they're originally out of Brooklyn. That album was recorded in like a storage facility there and it's like imperfect in all the best ways. And I think I just found that record at like a really impressionable time in my life. And I just, I, anytime I'm like questioning anything, like it's a record that I go back to. There's a song on there called I will keep the bad things from you. That was the song that my wife and I danced to. It was our first dance at our wedding, like handwritten lyrics. And you know, so it's. It's a pretty consistent through line at our lives. There's an album called Your Y-O-R-E by an artist called Evenings. And this is me being a loser, but Third Eye Blind, their album Blue, is incredible. It's so good. Start to finish, it's just straight bangers. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm like a Raven Third Eye Blind fan, and I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit it. Another record that's also like a guilty pleasure is American Hi-Fi's debut album. That record is also amazing but it's very like early 2000s like angsty kind of punk rock
1: cool well there you have it listeners (laughs) the the, the top five plus uh from matt no matt this has been amazing thanks so much for the time vitalmeplease.com obviously for those that want to learn more about vmp uh where else can they follow you online where are you on social
0: hit me up on linkedin matt fiedler is uh just search me and i'm sure you'll be able to find me other than that Unbreakable, U-N-B-R-K-B-L-E.com. It's a bit of an odd spelling, but the domain was available, so that's what it is. (laughs) And uh, happy to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time and really appreciate the conversation. Awesome. Me too, Matt. Thanks for doing this.
1: That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on.
0: Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here,
1: and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, The Spanish Remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love.
0: Now, wherever you
1: listen to music...